0: We continue our study of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Please open your copy of God's inspired word. I am going to read our passage for today, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll pray for us, and then we'll just dive in to this wonderful section of Scripture Follow with me as I read. Paul writes, Galatians 2:1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me four minds to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray together. Dear Father, you are due our praise because of your absolute perfections. Uh, Moses asks, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, O Lord? And our confession must be that there is no one like you. For you are majestic in holiness, you are the searcher of man's heart, you have perfect wisdom, you are the eternal one, you are the only true and wise God. And so I'm thankful that we can worship you this morning. But Father, as I consider my own heart, I I know I believe these truths about you and yet oftentimes I fail to live in light of them. I profess with my mouth for you to be the only true wise God and I am slow to turn to you. So practically I speak and I live as if there is room for me on your throne. So I pray that you would forgive me that you would have mercy on me, that you would blot out my transgressions, that you would renew in me a clean heart and restore the joy of my salvation. Teach me to live in obedience, always coming to you and living in light of your great truth that you reveal to me. I'm thankful that No amount of my works earns salvation with you and that all my sins have been forgiven in Christ. And it's on that basis that I can worship you. We can worship you together and rehearse the gospel that we'll get the opportunity to do this morning. I pray, dear spirit, for your help. Your wisdom is seen in this text this morning. So thank you for giving it to us. I ask that you would help us open our minds to the truth. Help us to hear clearly what you have to say. Please help remove the distractions from our minds and our hearts that we may focus upon you and be captivated by your truth. Lord Jesus, it's because of you that we can worship this morning. And so I, I pray that you would help us to worship you as you deserve, because of your goodness. Love you for who you are, thankful for what it is you've done. Help us, I pray, in your name, Amen. Amen. Alright, the book of Galatians, chapter 2. If you can remember, Paul writes this letter to the church of Galatia to clarify what the true gospel is. Uh, These men, the Judaizers, these are men who profess Christ with their lips, but they also taught that you had to add something to Christ's work in order to be saved. They taught that you had to couple mosaic works with the gospel for your salvation to be authentic. And this particular situation and the gravity of it can tend to escape us, or maybe we can overlook it a little bit because we are disconnected from this type of situation. <laughs> I don't think that there was anyone who was telling you you needed to be circumcised as you walk in today. In order to be saved, if you are, stop, it's called heresy. But take a moment with me, if you will, and consider that from a human perspective, Christianity and the Christian faith was in danger of just becoming another sect of Judaism. If this situation is not addressed, this circumcision situation, what you have from a human perspective is Christianity essentially becoming Judaism 3.0. But in God's perfect providence, he allows for this situation to occur. He allows for Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, the one who he says, if anyone could be justified by the law, it would have been me. He was made the apostle to the Gentiles. And then this particular situation arose in the early church so that gospel clarity could come. So that the theology of how man is justified before God could be crystallized. The question that is being answered in the book of Galatians is this. What exactly is necessary for Gentiles to become born again believers in Jesus Christ? These... Judaizers would have not denied Christ. Uh, They would have actually said faith was necessary. They would have said that Jesus is good and that the cross is something that had to happen. But the question is, is it alone enough? Is Christ's atonement enough by itself to cover sins? Is the atonement of Christ enough? finished or unfinished is it sufficient or insufficient or does something need to be added to it is essentially what we're trying to figure out as we work through galatians the judaizers we've rehearsed this sought to discredit paul by teaching that he was a man pleaser who perverted the gospel from jerusalem by watering it down he removed the the works aspects of the gospel to make it more appealing to the Galatians. And our verses from last week and the ones that we covered this morning is found in what's commonly known as the autobiographical section of the account where Paul gives sort of a testimony that actually acts as a defense against these Judaizers' accusations. Last week we saw that Paul's argument was that his gospel was independent of any man's teaching and the churches of Judea. That was verses 11 through 24 of chapter 1. And today in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, Paul is actually showing how his gospel is independent of the Jerusalem apostles specifically. Then next week we'll see how his authority is independent of Peter individually. By eliminating these as sources of his gospel, Paul establishes that his gospel message and its authority is directly from Jesus Christ and not any man. So look with me as we work through this text and we'll see Paul's defense of the true gospel. And the best way to be on guard to defend the truth is to know the truth so that if and when someone seeks to alter the gospel, you can defend the truth against the lie. So if you will, on the top of your handout, you'll see sort of our proposition statement for today. In Galatians 2, 1 through 10, you will see three actions that must be taken for you to stand for gospel truth and defend against gospel alterations. The first one is to certify gospel truth with others in your life, verses 1 through 2. We'll see God expl- uh, the gospel is explained to the pillars In verse 1 of Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and said before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. By using this word, our Bibles translates, then, Paul is connecting his readers to his previous argument. Uh, what he stated before and what he's about to convey are, are the same thing. They have the same purpose and the same intention. And it's chiefly to provide evidence or justification for this statement that he makes in Galatians 1. Look at verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the defense that Paul is building around. This is the case that he's trying to make. And if you could think back to last week with me, Paul told us about his life prior to salvation. Uh, his life was not one that was advantageous towards a law-free gospel that he was now preaching. Nothing in Paul's former life would make him the prime candidate for preaching Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, law-free gospel. He also mentioned in our text from last week, uh, God who set him apart, set him apart and called him to salvation for the purpose of preaching Christ and the freedom that's in Christ to the Gentile people. If you were to ask Paul, why did God save you? He would say, in part, God saved me to preach this message to the Gentile people. Then after his conversion, he walked us through how rather than immediately going up to Jerusalem to where he knew the apostles were and where all the other churches were, to learn from them. Instead, he went to Damascus and the Arabian Desert. And he was there for three years. So for three years, Paul preached Christ in Damascus and learned from Christ, uh, preached Christ in Damascus and learned from Christ in the desert. For three years, he preached Christ and learned Christ. It's interesting that the other apostles had three years of learning from Christ while he was here in their earthly ministry. And now Paul has seminary with Christ out in the desert for three years. He's learning from Christ. It was only after this that Paul finally goes up to Jerusalem. And when he was there, he was only there for 15 days. And the time there, he only saw Peter and James. Each, each aspect of what Paul has been laying out in this section is providing proof that his authority and his message is directly from Jesus and not man at all. Uh, my children have these wooden blocks at home. It's fun to watch them play with them, but they'll test your sanctification when you step on them in the middle of the night. <laughs> and sometimes they work to try to build towers together. And so they'll, they'll take one block and they'll stack it on top of the other and they'll add a layer on top of that and a layer on top of that until the blocks are so high that their little arms can't reach them, which is not much taller than my little arms either. <laughs> Here, Paul sort of has layers or blocks of evidence of God's message that he's preaching is directly from Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing is he's stacking blocks, on top of block, on top of block, so that the, the tower of evidence is so overwhelming that the Gentile believers can't do anything but trust and know that Paul's message is from Christ. And by doing so, they put that faith and trust in the person of Christ who Paul preached, not what the Judaizers were promoting. So in our text this morning when Paul says, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, what he's doing is he's adding another block On top of the evidence tower. He's he's, he's helping these people understand that his message is from Christ. He says 14 years. This is 14 years after his conversion. Remember, he's telling the same account. So from the moment that he was saved, 14 years is when he went back up to Jerusalem. For those who like math, he did three years in Damascus and Arabia 15 days in Jerusalem where he's seen Peter and James for the first time. About 10 years in Syria and Sicilia, which was at the end of our text from last week. This is also where his hometown Tarshish would be. Tarshish is in the area of Sicilia. Then we see in Acts 11, Barnabas goes and gets Paul. He ministers with him in Antioch for one year. And it's then that they go back up to Jerusalem. For those of you who are having a hard time following along with math, read Acts chapter 11. you'll see Paul talking about I'm sorry, Luke talking about a famine that occurred, and because of the famine, Paul and Barnabas went back up to Jerusalem. This is the account that they're talking about. This is what Galatians 2, 1 through10 is talking about. Well we see the, the, the famine relief of Acts 11. But what's interesting here is that Paul is going up, but he's not alone. Who's he got with him? Barnabas and Titus. Uh, the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles is determined not to be alone in his gospel efforts. So the first action that you must take, Christian, to be prepared to defend the truth against gospel alteration is to certify gospel truth with others in your life. That's to say, don't do gospel ministry by yourself. Surround yourself with people who believe the way you believe, who stand for what you stand for, who can encourage you and minister alongside of you. A solo Christian is an oxymoron. It's like a carnivore vegan. They they don't exist. Surround yourself with people who can bear witness and remind you of gospel truth and can attest to God's faithfulness in your life and your ministries. I mean, you got Paul, Titus, and Barney. I think he would be okay with me calling him Barney. We would be okay with each other. (laughs) They're on their way to provide relief to the Jerusalem church, but they're doing it together. What do you think they're talking about? Likely ministry in Antioch. Paul. Paul. You remember that time you cast the demon out of Billy? Yeah. It's kind of hard to believe what the Lord's doing in his life. Barnabas, you remember when God saved Rachel? Yeah, I think we prayed for her for like four months or something before God opened her eyes. Titus, how's things going with Tim? Well, he's still really apathetic towards the gospel, but I'm praying for him. You guys mind if we pray together now? I'm sure they're talking about ministry on the way up. They're going to provide relief to the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul surrounds himself with people who's ministering with him. And if you are going to be able to defend the truth, you must surround yourself with people so that you're not fighting and defending the truth alone. This is how Solomon would say it to you. and. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12, he would say, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. We're not meant to do the Christian life alone. We're not meant to defend the gospel alone. This is why God has saved us and placed you into a body. That's what we're for, to defend the truth together, to represent the truth together. Paul, Titus, and Barnabas, on their way up to Jerusalem, And the wisdom that is in this text began to come out for me at this point. See, it's important to realize that the primary reason that Paul, Titus, and Barnabas are going up to Jerusalem is not to sort of settle some sort of dispute. They're going up primarily to help with the famine relief. The main reason for going up was to provide relief to the poor saints in Jerusalem And while Paul is going up, he says, you know, I'm going to present my gospel message to Peter. And now while I'm there, last time he was there, he only had 15 days or so. This is a good opportunity to rehearse what he's been preaching. But as Paul now is reflecting on that account, as he reflecting on what happened and he's writing a letter to the Galatians, he's providing a defense, he's crafting it in such a way that brings out beauty. He adds one block of evidence. I went up because of a revelation. That's to say. No man told me to go up. God revealed to me. That I should go up. I do believe here. He's talking about the uh, prophet Agabus. gives a revelation of God. In Acts 11. You can read about it there. He gives a revelation. He went up by a revelation. And then he adds another block. He says I, I took Titus along with me. Uh, his importance comes out a little bit more. We'll see here in a little bit. Then he says, in order to make sure that I was not running or that I had not run in vain. Paul is humble man. He knows that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He knows that his message is from Christ. But he considers here the practical implications that if the apostles in Jerusalem deny his message, what would happen? Remember, he didn't seek anyone for the authority. It's 14 years that he's been preaching this message before he even goes up. But what are the practical ramifications if they don't agree with him? Paul's gospel and his truthfulness will not be nullified because Paul's gospel was authoritative regardless to what the other apostles thought. Because he got it from who? Jesus Christ. But he will be fighting an uphill battle if they disagree with him. On one hand, Paul did not need the approval of Jerusalem to establish the truth of his gospel. But on the other hand, agreement with Paul is crucial to his ministry from a practical standpoint. Think about what type of ammunition the Judaizers would have if the apostles in Jerusalem disagreed with Paul. If they said you did need to be circumcised, it doesn't invalidate the truthfulness of Paul's message but it does make his ministry and the flourishing of his ministry that much harder so he goes up and he says he he lays before the apostles in order to make sure he wasn't running in vain and and the the construction of this is interesting it's a it's a way of laying before or or communicating he's not he's not asking a question here this is not this is not Paul saying do i have the right gospel this is Paul saying Here's my gospel. He goes up to the apostles in Jerusalem and he says, Here's what I'm preaching. Do you agree? He's not looking for approval. He's looking for agreement. This is what the Lord told me. And then look at this very subtle but profound block of evidence that he lays here. He says, I went up to Jerusalem, and who's the first person he mentions? With who? Barnabas. 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 This is so good. Remember, he's writing to the churches of Galatia. Barnabas would have traveled with Paul on his first missionary journey when these churches in Galatia were planted. They know Barnabas personally. The Judaizers are attacking Paul, but they know Paul and Barnabas. By saying, I went up with Barnabas, Paul is essentially calling Barnabas to the witness stand. He's essentially saying, you know Barnabas, you know his character. We went up to Jerusalem together. Ask Barney. He'll let you know. It's one thing not to like the Apostle Paul and to call him a liar and a man pleaser, but Barnabas? Come on, man. Not Barnabas. You're going a little too far now, Judaizers. Listen to what the Bible tells us who Barnabas was. In Acts 4.36, it says this about Barnabas. Joseph, that's Barnabas' real name. Joseph, who was called by the Apostles Barnabas, which means... Son of encouragement. This is who he was. They called him son of encouragement because he did what? He encouraged you. Having a hard day? Man, Barney will encourage you. He'll help you out. In Acts 4.37, speaking of Barnabas, it says, He sowed a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a sacrificial, generous man. When Paul says, I took Barnabas up with me. Everything about Barnabas would have been going through the churches of Galatia's mind. This is what it says in Acts 9 verses 26 through 27 about Barnabas. It says in He, this is speaking of Paul, and when Paul had come up to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He, he vouched for him. He brought him in. Guys, I know he was a persecutor of the church. I know he was out here putting Christians in jail and persecuting them. But I know I've seen him change. I've seen him preach Christ. Give him a chance. This is Barnabas. In Acts 11, man, it gives the best description of this man that I could find in the Bible. Acts 11, verses 22 through 24, it says... The report of this came to the ears of the churches in Jerusalem. The report that they're talking about here is how Gentiles were being saved in Antioch. So you got a whole bunch of Gentile believers coming or Gentile people coming to faith in Antioch. And the report of this came back to the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when they, when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them. That word could be translated encouraged as well because when you're the son of encouragement, what do you do? You encourage. So he exhorted them. They remained faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then it says this. This is a beautiful description. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's Barnabas. When Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem With Barnabas and Titus, this is what the Galatians would have remembered. A good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Man, what if that was like what was printed on your tombstone? A good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That tells us everything that we need to know about you in that small sentence. What better way for Paul to Confirm that what happened in Jerusalem was truth then by putting Barnabas on the stand. And he would have no one else represent him other than Barnabas. It would be similar to this. Like, if I said to you, you know, last night we were down in Cary Park and we were witnessing and sharing the gospel with some Mormons. And they were trying to teach a bunch of falsehood, but we defended the truth against them. Well yes, Stefan, who's we? Who's all with you? Oh, it was me and Rick Gertsen and Thiago and Dave Landis. Like immediately when you guys hear some of those names, the truthfulness of the statement comes to bear. Why? Because you know those men. Because you know their character. You know what they like. You know what they represent. You know the truth that they proclaimed for years and years and years. So for the Galatians to hear Barnabas, it's like hearing, yeah, I was there with Rick Gertzen. Galatians, I went up, I defended the truth against the Judaizers, and Barnabas was there with me. <laughs> Paul's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant man. Do you want to be prepared to defend the gospel? Then certify gospel truth with others in your life. Find yourself a Barnabas type friend that you can serve with in ministry and learn together and grow together and serve together and defend the truth together. Surround yourself with these type of people. And this is why the church is so important because where else are you going to find these type of people at, right? Find yourself a Barnabas because one day You can be certain about this, and as you pay attention to anything in the news, you know that this is a fact. You will be called one day to stand for the truth. So when that time comes, you will be prepared if you've linked arms with your brothers and sisters that you won't yield any ground to false truths, which brings us to our next point. You'll see there in your handouts, yield no ground to almost gospels. If you want to be a defender of the truth, you must yield no ground, zero ground, to almost gospels. You'll see in the text, the circumcision is not required. Verse 3, Paul says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Picture Paul in a courtroom. He's been put on trial. The charges filed against Paul is man-pleasing, second-class apostle who distorts the truth, That the good news is actually Christ's work plus circumcision. Uh, The prosecutors, uh, the Judaizers, has presented their witnesses against Paul. Witness number one. We know that the Jerusalem apostles taught that faith in Christ plus circumcision equals salvation. Witness number two. Paul went to Jerusalem and spent time learning from these men. And then he came to you, Galatians, and perverted the truth. He doesn't care for you but he only desired to tickle your ear, so he lessened the gospel truth. But take heart, we're here to save you. Trust us, we're no man-pleasers like he is. It's interesting, Paul actually accuses them of being man-pleasers in chapter 6 of Galatians. Look at Galatians 6.12 when you get home. He says that they started promoting circumcision so that they wouldn't be persecuted by the, Judea, uh, by the uh, Jewish people. Sorry. But we're in the courtroom and there's the Apostle Paul. Got on a nice pair of sandals and a tailor robe. He doesn't need a lawyer, he represents himself. Ladies and gentlemen of the court, may I take the stand? I was saved on my way to kill and imprison Christians, which I was very good at by the way. It was three years after being saved that I finally saw Peter and James, and that was only for 15 days. I went back home after that, and I was preaching the same message that Christ gave to me before I met them. And it was 14 years before I went back up to Jerusalem, and I only went up there because God revealed to me that I should go. And if all of that evidence is not enough to adjudicate Paul of these trumped-up charges what he says next in our text does what he says next is the equivalent of a recorded alibi live streamed on Facebook with Paul holding two forms of identification, showing a unique tattoo next to an ugly birthmark. It doesn't get any better than what he puts here. Paul in the court, by the way, ladies and gentlemen of the court, Persecutors' witness claimed that the Jerusalem apostles required circumcision to be saved. But when I went up to Jerusalem, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Case closed, right? Up to this point in the letter, Paul has not even mentioned the particular situation going on in Galatia. This is the first time in our letter that circumcision is actually mentioned. And Paul brilliantly exposes the issue in Galatia by drawing their attention to what happened in Jerusalem concerning the issue of circumcision. Paul is a brilliant man. Think about it this way. See, theological debates are one thing But for Titus not to be circumcised is a practical situation that revealed the reality of what the Jerusalem apostles really believed. If the Judaizers claim the apostles in Jerusalem promoted circumcision in order to be saved, for Titus not to be circumcised is the evidence, the proof that shows the opposite. Paul says, I went out with Titus, he's a Greek, and he wasn't circumcised. You know, these type of things, when I see these little details when I study in the text, it really moves me to worship the Lord. Because remember this, what's the primary reason that they're going up? The the primary reason Paul and Titus and Barnabas are going up to Jerusalem is to help with the relief the famine relief. They're going for a totally different reason. And when they go up in God's providence, this situation of circumcision arises while they're there. And guess who's with Paul? Exhibit number one, Titus, who was not forced to be circumcised. I mean, Paul can't lay out his argument any better than he does. This is the practical reality of what happened there. The Judaizers claim one thing, but what happened in reality is a totally different thing that proves them to be liars. It proves them to be, as Paul calls them here, false brothers. Paul actually provides the outcome of what happened. Titus was not circumcised before he talks about the situation that led to the Altercation, if you will. He says some false brothers slipped in, wormed themselves into the life of the congregation. Why? To spy out the freedom that comes to those who are in Christ. He calls them false brothers. Like in Paul's mind, to require circumcision and obedience to the law as a means for salvation is to essentially like, put yourself outside the circle of God's redeemed people. He calls them false brothers, pseudo-odelefos. They were pseudo-brothers. They crept in or slipped in to spy out our freedom. It's a, it's a military term that Paul uses here, to spy out. He, he essentially calls these guys undercover agents. Like the evil 007. What number is that? Double I don't know. Paul calls them conspirators. They crept in. Jude uses the same word in Jude 3 4. He talks about these types of people. He says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, who long ago was designated for this condemnation. He calls them ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and denied our master and Lord Jesus Christ. These pseudo-brothers, they they wiggled their way in. They wormed their way in to the church. And you know what? There'll be some of them here this morning. You have sat next to them sometimes. People who deny the truth of the gospel. You have freedom in Christ, and they want you to be enslaved with them because they don't have that freedom. if if misery loves company slavery loves congregations once you enslaved with them but listen to what Paul says look at your bibles we did not yield in submission for how long even a moment he gave them No ground. And this word that Paul uses for submission is actually a play on words. It it carries itself the understanding of slavery or subjection. Paul is saying they wanted to enslave us but we did not become enslaved to them for even a moment. And in doing this and providing this example Paul actually demonstrates how the Galatians should respond to the Judaizers. To take Take our example. For one second, we didn't even give them any ground, Paul says. He presents himself as a, a model to be imitated. It's interesting for me, and quite a bit of instructive as well. Paul, who's the Jew of Jew, who used to observe the Torah to the letter and prided himself on his adherence to it, will now say they're requiring observance is slavery. It's really helpful to see what the Lord does in a man's heart and how he changes a person. And you know what's scary to me as I think about this text? Because the Judaizers were Jewish and for centuries they had watched God work through the Jewish people. So for some of these men, they likely knew that they were wolves, but some of them were probably promoting what they think is truth. Right? I mean, for... Centuries, God has worked through the Jewish people. Things are different and maybe they don't fully understand that reality. And so in the sake of thinking they promoting truth, they're actually promoting slavery. Being enslaved to the law. And this is why I think for us, brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to know what the truth is so that we don't unknowingly or unintentionally become promoters of falsehood that's why Paul says study to show yourself approved that's why we gotta do the work that's why we gotta hide the truth of God's word in our hearts if I could take a little liberty here with application I asked your permission but I'm gonna do it anyway Because I think here at GBC, we have been faithfully taught. When falsehood arises, especially those striking blows at the gospel, the truth has been preached here for so long that we can recognize it quickly. Although this does not excuse us from being watchmen and defenders of the truth, but any type of work-based salvation system, I think, is easily squashed here. I mean, we even preach election, so... but I want to talk about practically speaking for a moment. Though we may not depend on our works for righteousness before God, we can easily be tempted to find our security and our significance from the things that we do. We may be driven to activities by a deep-seated insecurity that longs for the approval of others. Our activities and our employment in our service to the church or even the things that we do in the community may on the outside appear to be an indication of our commitment to God, but it can find its root in seeking the approval of men just the way that the Judaizers did. I think, friends, we must be careful to maintain a disposition of heart that all of our efforts in this life flow from a love for Christ and a desire to please Him. How easy it is for us to stray from gospel truth and seek to become man pleasers. But just like Titus was not circumcised, our practical theology, the things we do in our life, has to be an outworking of the reality of what we truly believe. So how could you evaluate your own heart if you're practically abandoning gospel truth and seeking to please man in some way? Or maybe adding something to the gospel Practically speaking, maybe you won't go as far to say that someone is not saved, but you treat them like a second-class brother or citizen for things that they do or don't do. So what do you require before you look at someone with full gospel acceptance? Do they have to be homeschoolers? Do they have to shop at Dylan's instead of Aldi's? Maybe use essential oils instead of candles? What do you practically add before you will accept someone fully? Maybe they have to live in 67502 instead of 67501. Lord forbid they live in South Hutch, right? 67505? I used to represent the South Hutchers. Seriously speaking, though, what do we add to the gospel? What if it was a a trans a former transgender woman who truly came to faith in Christ? Would you fully accept him as a man? Or would you add your own form of Judaizing on top of it? What if they just got out? What if they did jail time? Do you add your form of Judaism on top of that before you accept them practically speaking as a full brother? I think that these are areas where we have to be careful. We might not say that someone can't be saved apart from the gospel, but I think practically speaking, we can add things before we add people into our inner circle, right? Love one. Friends, if you want to stand for gospel truth and defend against gospel operation, uh, alteration, yield no ground to almost truths that can change the requirement to salvation, either theologically or in the practical outworking of the gospel in your life. We must be careful. Those who have made a commitment to Christ should be fully accepted until proven otherwise. And we evaluate them based on their profession of faith and the demonstration of fruit that the Spirit is working in their lives. Outside of that, we can't add anything else to the gospel, especially as we welcome brothers and sisters into our hearts, and to our lives, and into our homes. Amen? Because Jesus' kingdom is too large for any one of us, each person serves in different capacities. He's allotted to each of us our areas of ministry. And so we must be faithful to where he has allotted to us and do the work that's necessary. Not looking to man, but to him and his truth alone, which brings us to our next point. Commit to the truth. And not to people. If you want to be a defender of gospel truth, look to God's word, to the truth of God's word, and not to the status of any man. Verse six of our text And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. There's such wisdom in how Paul handles this situation. He displays the love of a pastor with the tact of an apologist. Paul loves these Galatians believers and so he delicately handles how he conveys the truth to them. See, on one hand, Paul cannot compromise his gospel by granting that the Jerusalem apostles have ultimate authority. And yet, on the other hand, their ratification or approval of his gospel uh, functions as a powerful rebuttal to the Judaizers. Paul uses this phrase of the apostles in Jerusalem. In your Bibles, it translated, seem to be influential. You see that? Once in verse 2, twice in verse 6, and then again in verse 9. Those who seem to be influential, from my perspective, is a little bit of an understatement on Paul's part. But it's also not an understatement. These were the apostles we're talking about. Specifically in our texts, Peter, James, and John. I mean, these dudes were on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured. They saw Jesus peel back the, the veil of his humanity and reveal the glorious radiance of deity from underneath. If anything is true of these men in the early churches, that they definitely were influential. But I think what Paul is trying to help us understand is that they were influential only because they were heralds of the truth. They seemed to be influential, and they were, not because they in and of themselves were influential, but because they were made influential by Jesus Christ and they were faithful to the message that they preached. Paul is not downplaying the stature or the position of the other apostles, he's cautioning his people of overestimating their authority. Remember the Galatians were being uh, bewildered by the Judaizers who were pointing to the authority of the Jerusalem apostles. Paul says they seem to be influential. Final authority does not come from the apostles themselves, but from the truth that they herald. They were representatives of the Lord, and therefore the authority that they had is only to the degree that they accurately represent that truth. Care, from us must be taken not to grant too much authority to man because final authority, Paul would say, is in the gospel alone. Leaders are to be respected but not venerated, honored but not exalted above the gospel. They seemed to be influential, Paul would say. I believe Paul went to this private meeting Knowing that regardless of what the pillars thought. He was not going to cease to preach the gospel. That he knew was true. That he got directly from the Lord Jesus. Because he knew it was the truth. And these were. Men. Normal. Regular men. And Paul understood that. One. Brother kindly took some of us pastors out to lunch this week. We had a. Good time talking and learning about each other a little bit. He even talked about how him and his family are thankful for the teaching at GBC and how they've grown since they've been here, about some of the doctrinal struggles that they have to work through since being here. But during that lunch, he asked a question that reminded me of this passage. This was his question. So what do you men struggle with? We provided a few answers Then he jokingly said, oh, you mean to tell me you're human too? It was funny. We had a good laugh, but I appreciate his question. Because what he didn't ask was, if you men struggle with anything, he asked, what do you men struggle with? See, he recognized we're just men who preach what God has said. And this is what Paul is emphasizing in this text. Peter, James, and John were men who preached what God said. Any authority and influence that was granted to them was granted if and only if they opened up their Bibles, pointed to a verse, and said, Thus says the Lord. And nothing is different from anyone in your life. Any person God has placed into your life should have influence and authority in your life to the degree that they open up the book and says, let's see what God has to say about it. Other than that, there's no room for authority. What is the apostle getting at here? I'm not changing my gospel. I know it's true. Christ revealed it to me. Regardless of what the pillars think, I'm going to preach truth but I sure hope that they agree with me because it's the truth it's the truth as Paul tells his narrative he clues us in on to what he's thinking about the other Apostles but if you notice he also clues us in on what the other Apostles would have been thinking about him look at your Bibles it says in verse 9 Back up to verse 8. And when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, and then he goes on to say in verse 9, they perceived the grace that was given to me. Paul uses this word, your Bible translates saw and perceived. They're, They're called cause of participles. This is to say that the only reason that Peter, James, and John extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas is because they saw the work that God was doing through them. They heard his gospel preached, they saw what the Lord was doing, and so then they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. Just as much as Paul would have been unwilling to waver from the truth, Peter, James, and John would have been unwilling to waver from the truth. Now, we know Peter has difficulty. He always has a little difficulty. He's Peter. He reminds me of myself a lot of ways. But these men knew what the truth were, and they extended the right hand of fellowship based on that. They saw and perceived that God, by his grace, had, the word is, entrusted Paul with the stewardship, the same way that he entrusted Paul Peter with the stewardship, it's a it's a divine passive. God gave this to them. Two different cultures they were supposed to go to, but with the same gospel, the same message to two different people groups. I you know, I try to think about how they would have evaluated this situation. Remember Paul and Barnabas or Antioch, people were coming to faith. They know people are coming to faith. They come back down. Barnabas has already introduced Paul to them. They know that he's been changed. And then they hear his gospel message. What do you do? No, you used to be a persecutor. No, there's no way God could do that through you. No, he's only going to work through the Jewish people. What do you do? They had to come to grips with the reality of what God was revealing. They had to come to the grips with the reality that Paul was called to preach this message to the Gentiles because the reality of the Old Testament scripture is God is too big for just the Jewish people. He wants the whole world to worship him. And so he used Paul as the catalyst to go out to the Gentiles and all of us in here at Hutchins in Kansas are representatives, I mean, are beneficiaries of Paul's ministry. Each one of us, the gospel went from small Jerusalem to this altercation here, to Antioch, to around the world, and now here in Hutchinson, Kansas, some 2,000 years later. And it's the same message. Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. To the glory of God alone. And we know this how? Based on the scriptures alone. The same message God has been championing and echoing throughout history, we are beneficiaries of. And Paul says, I didn't yield. Will you? Will you? I don't believe that God uses any church forever, so one day Grace Bible will go astray. But will it be on your watch? That's the question. We all have been given a, given a stewardship And so let's do our best to steward it as God gives us the grace to do it. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us.